It's now time for Skagit Talks, featuring local news, interviews, and information from around the valley, created with the help of Skagit County community volunteers. Now, KSVR 91.7 presents Skagit Talks. Today is the COVID-19 update with Dr. Howard Leibrand, the Skagit Public Health Officer. He talks about that Washington State is in a fourth wave of the COVID-19 pandemic, and a lot more. In the Northwest News Report, firefighting prevention funding heads to Inslee's desk. Hispanic community faces many barriers to get vaccinated against COVID-19. Department of Homeland Security sent more than 750 federal officers, spent millions responding to Portland protests. All this and more on today's edition. Now, the COVID-19 update. Good day and welcome to Skagit Talks. This is David Johnson. It's a pleasure to welcome back our good friend, Dr. Howard Leibrand, uh, Skagit County Health Officer, here to talk about all things COVID and what's been going on with the pandemic, and particularly here in the county, but broadly uh, around the world. Howard, it's good to have you back. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Well, it's, good. it's good to have you with us. So um, I read in the paper this morning that the governor thinks we're about to enter our fourth wave. Um, is he right? Is he wrong? What's, up? what's going on with that? He's right. And uh, the reason I say that is because statewide, we're seeing an uptick in cases um, that's putting many counties either on the immediate path towards greater than 200 per 100,000 population over a two-week period, or they've already they're on that path or they've already reached that. And here in Skagit County, we are still technically below that number, but um, we've been seeing We've had about two weeks of cases in the 20s per day, um, and anything over 18 new pa- new cases per day, um, that figures out to be greater than 200 per 100,000 for two weeks. So anytime we have a day that's over 18, we are getting closer to that magic number of 200. When the review is done in a week and a half or so, um, I suspect that we're going to be over 200, and that's going to mean that um, we need to go back to phase two, and we need to be more careful about everything that we're doing. Um, I think that this is still kind of a nip and tuck race towards summer, and you know, as we move outdoors, as we more people get vaccinated, as more people realize, hey, this isn't gone, um, I think that we can overcome the greater infectivity, infectiousness of the of the variants that we're seeing now in the county. Well, that was going to be my follow-up. Is it is it because of the variants or is it, do you think it's because people are just not taking care or is it, are there underlying factors, um, smokers, diabetics, obese people? I mean, uh, are there underlying factors or is, it, or is it pretty much, do you think we've let our guard down? No, I think the kind of the major thing is the increased infectivity of the variants. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the what we see with that is that what was working two months ago and bringing our numbers down is no longer working. We need to up our game a little bit. That increase that includes increasing vaccination and increasing our um, our efforts to um, basically stay away from congested indoor areas where there's poor airflow and wear our mask when we're in close proximity to other people or have to be indoors with other people. Now. The, the, the other thing that happened um, was called Easter and spring break. And, um, you know, we've seen it every single time where there's a holiday that encourages people to gather. That gives the, the virus an opportunity. And we've also seen activity, spring break activity do this before 
several times or similar holiday activity of of um, students where they they're more safe in school um, and you let them out of school and let them party then you run into problems so um, now what you mentioned about high risk individuals um, people with diabetes hypertension heart disease etc they aren't at any higher risk of acquiring the vaccine they are however at higher risk of having complications of it so virus contributing to the upswing but um, certainly they are negatively affected by the upswing in that they're more likely to get disease the um, you know I think that we're seeing a change in the demographic of the people who are getting sick there are more 20 to 49 year olds in that that's a proportional thing because the people who are high risk and older have been vaccinated I mean we're 60 to 70 percent on our elders in vaccination rate that's that's excluding them from the people who get disease for the most part there are some breakthrough cases but they are a minority you know we know this is a vaccine which is 95 percent effective so we know a few people are going to get sick after the vaccine but they tend to be a lot less sick they tend to have less hospitalizations uh, ccu admissions and death the other thing that we're seeing is the hospitalizations are starting to upswing in the last little bit and that's just a measure of increased disease in community and um those are people who are in the younger age because they're the people who didn't get a vaccine before the vaccine and before the virus you know, got them. So um, again, wear your masks, stay outside as much as possible, uh, ventilate any indoor spaces well with cross-flow ventilation and um, wear your masks. Well, let me just yeah which it, is all all good uh, good medicine uh i, I am curious uh recently a friend of mine was watching on zoom because she wouldn't go but there was a board meeting of her homeowners association everybody in the room was probably 65 and above nobody was wearing a mask because they'd all been vaccinated so it doesn't matter anymore door was closed they were drinking coffee they were eating coffee cake but they were vaccinated so they were probably safe uh who's right them them or you so I think we're both right. I mean, they are, anybody who's vaccinated, who has had um, their two weeks beyond the second dose of their, beyond the final dose of the vaccine, um, one dose if it was J&J, two doses if it was Moderna or Pfizer, they are at an enviable position where they are much less likely to get disease. Now that doesn't mean they can't get disease. That doesn't mean that they can't transmit disease, but it means that they are about 20 times less likely to do either of those. And if they do get the disease, it's less severe. So it's it's okay in some situations to let your guard down a little bit, but in that um, room full of 65 people with our current rates, even vaccinated, it was pretty likely that one of them possibly had the disease. And it's also quite likely with the vaccination rate being in the 60 to 70% range in, in elderly individuals, that there are people in that room who were not vaccinated. So the, the recommendation is that you still do things to mitigate disease, um, avoid close contact, avoid um, you know congested um, indoor spaces, ventilate a room well, and wear your mask. Um, you know, I see headlines that, um, you know, make a big deal out of the fact that somebody got this illness after getting vaccinated. Um, you know, that's not um, unusual. We know the vaccine is 95%, give or take, effective. So that means that 
if you have a hundred people, it doesn't mean that five of those hundred are going to get disease, but five of those hundred are still susceptible to disease and need to be careful. Um, so if we have somebody, and we do constantly see people who um, statewide have gotten the vaccine, we call them breakthrough cases, and then they got the virus. That That's not unexpected. That's not unusual. And the the silver lining to all this is they are less likely to again transmit that disease and they're less likely to have severe illness so they are they, the vaccine still benefited them even though they did get covid for the most part there are very few people who get you know ccu and um and, and death to, or sick to the point of death who have had the vaccine it has that even has happened but again it's so rare that um we don't not talk about it but it's not it's not to be emphasized sure it makes sense i can i could call a few years ago i got my flu shot but i still got the flu but i was out for a day and a half as opposed to my neighbor who was out for a full week uh who didn't get the shot so that's that's how they all work just want to remind our listeners we're talking again on this friday afternoon with dr howard Librand. he's the skagit county health officer we're talking all things covid and how you can protect yourself and it's still the basic stuff so, uh, wash your hands stay away from congested areas wear your mask and take care of yourself and others and get that vaccine when and if you can one of the questions i had for you I, um, Howard is uh, as as we're opening up more people are traveling now. I see the lines at SeaTac are are getting longer. They were out to the parking garage last week, and uh, people are driving around. And with the nicer weather coming up, we're seeing people taking road trips. Uh, I'm I'm curious if someone was coming, say, from New York or Chicago, and and they'd got one shot there, and now they're coming to Seattle area or here in Skagit County. They need that second dose of the Pfizer or Moderna. Uh, first of all, is there a chance of getting that here in Skagit County? And second, eh, if they got one of Pfizer, can they go ahead and get the second one of Moderna because it's available? So two questions. Um, yes and no. The, the first question, can they get it here? Yes, they can. We, we are not restricting our vaccinations to people from within our county or people from even in our state. If, you, if, it's, if you're scheduled, um, if it's time for you to get your next dose, then you can... Um, get an appointment and sign up and it and we will do the vaccine now um i can't speak for every provider but the general um rule is that we're not restricting vaccine to our county to people from our county or from our state um the second question um the so once you've received one vaccine you are partially protected for a short period of time so two to three weeks after the first dose even of Moderna or Pfizer, you have some protection. It won't last forever. You do need the booster, but you can assume that you do have some protection. Now that doesn't mean that you stop all other uh, you know, mitigation strategies for that virus. What it does mean is that you continue to do those things. And despite the fact that we have a more contagious variant on, in the area, you are less likely to get disease. Now, if you, then you need your second dose, you're not able to go back to where you got your first dose, you, you still do have to get the same, um, the same dose. You know, you can maybe rationalize that the, there's not that much difference between the two mRNA vaccines, but there's no studies done so far that um, with information released that says that mix and match is, is effective. And um, both vaccines are available enough that that shouldn't be too much of a um, of an impediment to getting care. 
Out of curiosity, is that second dose different than the first or is it the same dose repeated the second time? It is the same dose repeated second time. We call them prime doses and booster doses, but that's mostly an accounting thing where we try not to use um, doses that are intended for boosters to be used as prime because then people have trouble finding places to get their booster. So from a an accounting standpoint, logistically, the providers tend to make a differentiation, but there is no difference in these two vaccines. There is a little bit of difference in our response to them. You've already got some immunity, and so the the body is revved up to take care of this, this invader, and so you sometimes get more side effects. These side effects are not necessarily a bad thing. They are an indicator that you are amounting an immune response, and um, there's there's some confusion about Tylenol and ibuprofen. Theoretically, and in some um, larger studies, there is a slight decrease in the immune response that's mounted if you, a decrease if you use Tylenol or ibuprofen, because it really blunts the body's um, symptoms, which are, that's done by blunting the body's reaction to the vaccine. So if you're having minor symptoms, um, first of all, don't pre-treat yourself with um, acetaminophen, Tylenol, or ibuprofen or other anti-inflammatories. Um, but if you do have symptoms which are bothersome and in interfering with what you need to do, it's okay to use one of those um, inflammation reducers or fever reducers. They theoretically blunt the um, efficacy, uh, the effectiveness of the vaccine a little bit, but this vaccine is so effective that it, that's probably not going to make a major difference and it might make a great difference for how you're able to tolerate the, the vaccine. With about 45 seconds left, um, what do you think about the J&J &J, uh, vaccine coming back? I know there's it's in the news and we don't know for sure, but um, it was a one-shot deal and there's a little bit of a risk to it. So what do you think? Well, uh, the ACIP, the ACIP, um, that's the CDC organization that um, really looks at vaccine um data rule and makes the rules on its use that <clears throat> they're meeting today and there's supposed to be a decision about what will be done i haven't heard any other earth shattering news about the johnson and johnson vaccine one of the things we were doing by pausing is allowing us to um, really look more at the data that's being evaluated and have a little more time to see whether this is a you know a small thing affecting um a, a few individuals, not small for that individual, obviously, but small size-wise from the the, the, the big picture. Um, and I can see also if we're able to find out who's at risk. For example, we do know that these um, blood clot complications were in the 18 to 48 female age group and probably are similar to uh, complications that we see with the birth control pill or pregnancy, both birth control and pregnancy are high estrogen states, and they tend to make people have more problems with blood clotting. So um, maybe we need to avoid um, giving the vaccine to that those individuals um, and just do it to um, females of non-childbearing age or males. Um, I, I don't know what the AI, ACIP is going to come up with, but those are some possibilities. Um, either say, go ahead with um, informed consent that this is possibly risky in those age groups or restrict some of those individuals with those features from getting the vaccine, that vaccine. 
Okay. Well, I sure appreciate all the information you're able to cover. Um, Howard Lybrand is uh, the Skagit County Health Officer. He knows a lot about COVID, and I have I don't think I've thrown him a curveball he couldn't hit yet. So we really appreciate Howard coming on board. We'll be talking to Dr. Lybrand again next week, unfortunately, because COVID keeps spreading. So in the meantime, this is David Johnson from Skagit Talk saying thanks for listening. Keep those masks on. Keep washing those hands. Stay away from folks and do me a favor and stay healthy. Thanks for listening. Here's the Northwest News Report. In the case of funding to help fight wildfires, it turns out the second time and a really destructive wildfire season is the charm. Washington lawmakers have passed a bill that will expand firefighting and forest restoration. Northwest Public Broadcasting's Courtney Flatt has more. After watching homes and lives destroyed too many years in a row, Washington Public Lands Commissioner Hillary Franz pushed hard for more funds to prepare for wildfire season. With this bill, the Department of Natural Resources will get $500 million doled out over an eight-year period. The state says that averages out to less than what it spends fighting wildfires each year. The additional money will help modernize an aging air fleet, which includes helicopters from the Vietnam War era, and the state can hire more firefighters. It will accelerate forest restoration efforts, helping to thin out trees and making forests more resilient. The funds will also help communities better prepare for fires. That could include creating fuel breaks around vulnerable towns and helping neighborhoods make homes more fire-resistant. Once signed by the governor, funding for this year will be ready in July. That won't be in time to have all the efforts in place for this summer's fire season. I'm Courtney Flatt reporting. Health workers are trying to vaccinate as many farm workers as possible before peak growing season. Misinformation, youth, and access are some common barriers. Correspondent Anna King has more. Farm workers often put in long hours. Some don't have their own transportation to get to clinics in town. Angelis Ize is an epidemiologist at the Benton Franklin Health District. She says it takes a lot of conversation, and sometimes more than one, to convince each person. She's found many young people to be especially hesitant, believing falsely that the shot will affect their fertility or that they're not at risk. But at a recent clinic, she talked one young man into getting the shot. Then, an hour later, he brought his parents. And he said, you know, I also asked my brothers and sisters if they wanted to get the vaccine. And, you know, I told them they should get it, but they did not uh, want to come and get it. Ize is hopeful each positive vaccine experience will lead more people in the Latinx community to follow suit. I'm Anna King. A new report out from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Officer of Inspector General examined the agency's response to last summer's racial justice protest in Portland. As Oregon Public Broadcasting's Conrad Wilson reports, it found DHS was unprepared when officers first arrived in Portland. The inspector general found the Department of Homeland Security had the legal authority to send officers to protect the federal courthouse in downtown Portland, as well as other federal property. Over the course of the summer, more than 750 DHS officers participated in the operation to protect the federal courthouse. It was part of a regional plan which cost more than $12 million. The inspector general also found few of the officers sent had been trained in riot and crowd control, even though that was the primary mission. The federal officers who worked in Portland reported hundreds of injuries. Last summer's protests in the city quickly became a rallying cry for then-President Trump's re-election campaign, which was centered on law and order. Members of Oregon's congressional delegation say the report shows the Department of Homeland Security was not prepared and acted too forcefully. I'm Conrad Wilson in Portland. Here's 2021 Talks, tracking our presidency in historic times. 
Welcome to 2021 Talks, where we are following our democracy in historic times. No nation can solve this crisis on our own. President Joe Biden announced a bold goal at day one of a virtual climate summit with 40 world leaders. The United States sets out on the road to cut greenhouse gases in half, in half by the end of this decade. Meanwhile, at a House hearing on the impact of fossil fuels on climate change, 18-year-old Swedish activist Greta Thunberg chided the U.S. over fossil fuel subsidies and called on U.S. leaders to step up their efforts to cut carbon emissions. We, the young people, are the ones who are going to write about you in the history books. We are the ones who get to decide how you will be remembered. So my advice for you is to choose wisely. Republicans vow to fight Biden's plans to shift to renewable energy from coal and fossil fuels. In the Senate, Republicans unveiled their counteroffer to the president's $2.3 trillion American Jobs Plan. Mississippi Republican Roger Wicker says their $568 billion plan is more narrowly focused just on physical infrastructure. We take the part of the president's plan that most Americans agree is real hard infrastructure. We give it our touch and we think we have uh, a very good number here. Biden wants a corporate tax rate of 28 percent to help pay for infrastructure, but the GOP plan would preserve the 2017 corporate tax rate of 21 percent. A bill denouncing discrimination against Asian communities passed the Senate on Thursday. Here's the bill's sponsor, Democrat Maisie Hirono of Hawaii. As important as the content and substance of the bill is the message of this bill that we in the Senate are going to stand with our AAPI community and indeed any community that is discriminated against on the basis of race or any of the categories that you and I can think of. Missouri Republican Josh Hawley, the lone dissenting vote, argued the bill was too broad. Four Republican amendments did not make it into the legislation, including one restricting federal funding for colleges that discriminate against Asian Americans in admissions. The House passed a D.C. statehood bill, but not without controversy. Democrat Mondaire Jones of New York accused Republicans of using racist arguments against statehood, sparking interruption in the chamber. One of my House Republican colleagues said that D.C. shouldn't be a state because the district doesn't have a landfill. My goodness, with all the racist trash my colleagues have brought to this debate, I can see why they're worried about having a place to put it. Republicans immediately demanded that Jones' words be struck, and the freshman congressman agreed. The bill faces an uphill battle for Senate passage, which would likely require ending the filibuster. Federal prosecutors expect to charge at least 100 more people in connection with the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. 400 people have already been charged and what will likely be one of the largest prosecutions in American history. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Mary Sherman. Thanks for listening. Here's the national news. The Public News Service Daily Newscast, April the 23rd, 2021. I'm Mike Clifford. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services says if Texas wants a Medicaid waiver it was granted in the final days of the Trump administration, it would need to reapply. The Biden administration rescinded a 10-year extension of what's known as Texas's Medicaid 1115 Transformation Waiver. Arguing that all Texans deserve a voice in the future of Medicaid, the Episcopal Health Foundation agrees with the decision. President and CEO Elena Marks says a waiver would have allowed Texas to continue paying hospitals for the bills of uninsured patients. 
Mark says Texans don't have real health coverage solutions because Medicaid hasn't been expanded. And that means that Texas has the largest number and the largest percentage of uninsured people in the country. The more uninsured people you have, the more uncompensated care you have. I'm Roz Brown. It is estimated if Texas opted for expansion, the state could get $5.6 billion in federal funding over two years, assuming one million uninsured people eligible for Medicaid coverage sign up for the program. The U.S. Senate overwhelmingly approved legislation Thursday aimed at strengthening federal efforts to address hate crimes directed at Asian Americans amid a sharp increase in discrimination and violence against Asian communities in the U.S. That from the New York Times. They report the bipartisan vote, 94 to 1, was the first legislative action either chamber of Congress has taken to bolster law enforcement's response to attacks on people of Asian descent, which have intensified during the coronavirus pandemic. The Times notes the measure was sponsored by Senator Maisie Hirano and would establish a position at the Justice Department to expedite the agency's review of hate crimes and expand the channels to report them. And Washington lawmakers have approved funding for the Washington Families Tax Credit more than a dozen years after it was initially passed. Eric Teganoff explains. The program is modeled after the Earned Income Tax Credit at the federal level and will provide an estimated 420,000 households tax rebates of between $300 and $1,200 starting in 2023. The bill received near-unanimous support from legislators. Emily Vananek with the Washington State Budget and Policy Center says a coalition of groups has worked to push this policy to the forefront in recent years. There's a lot of reasons, but I don't think it can be overlooked how the pandemic really shed light on the deep inequities that already existed in our state. Vananek says 29 other states have a state-based tax credit program for low-income workers. But Washington's is unique because it ensures that the people with the lowest income get the largest rebate. Nearly four dozen groups spanning a range of interests supported the program. This is PNS. With President Joe Biden pledging to cut U.S. greenhouse gas pollution in half by 2030 at the close of his global climate summit, Virginia officials say they're eager to work with a federal ally who prioritizes climate solutions. During the Trump administration, Mike Turner, a Loudoun County District Supervisor, says he continued clean energy efforts despite the lack of federal support. Last year's passage of Virginia's Clean Economy Act, which requires zero carbon emissions by 2050, motivated Loudoun County to step up its initiatives. Turner says together the two guidelines are setting a course for a greener Virginia with more economic growth. I know the president's uh, global climate summit really focuses on a lot of initiatives that Virginia can take real advantage of all of these are going to create jobs. The key to this whole thing is exactly what the president is focused on and exactly what Governor Northam and our board here in Loudoun County is focused on, jobs. I'm Diane Bernard. In Indiana, a bill adding more layers of approval for emergency public health orders is now headed to Governor Eric Holcomb's desk. Critics of Senate Bill 5 say local health departments should have the autonomy to make decisions in the best interest of their residents without seeking a green light from politicians. Outgoing president of the Indiana Public Health Association, Susan Joe Thomas, says the legislation would allow local officials to second-guess or override the decisions of public health professionals. And we need to have the folks who have prepared and studied and have the resources available to make quick decisions 
decisions on how to react. If SB 5 is signed into law, local public health orders that are more restrictive than statewide mandates issued by the governor during an emergency would need approval by local elected officials. I'm Nadia Ramlagan. And finally, Lily Volke has been talking with Maine conservation groups that say the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, just introduced in Congress, would not only help the state conserve its wildlife populations, it would also create jobs and improve the outdoor experience for Mainers and for tourists. The bill would allocate almost $1.4 billion for states, territories, and tribes to implement their own wildlife action plans. It includes roughly $11.5 million for Maine. Commissioner Judy Camuso of the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife says they've identified 378 at-risk species in the state. One of the primary goals of this is to keep common species common, keep our biodiversity intact and our systems healthy and so that we don't have to list species moving forward. Among other things, the Department of Inland Fisheries plans on using that money to surveil and restore populations. This is Mike Clifford for Public News Service. Member and listener supported, heard on some of the nation's most interesting radio stations and online at publicnewsservice.org.